Language is, is not constructed like an algebraic formula out of sharply defined entities. You know, it's, it's a much more mushy business. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last week we talked about heroes and anti-heroes, and uh, this week I want to talk about errors and non-errors, anti-errors, if you will. <laughs> yes. Uh, we previously had a podcast where we discussed a project by uh, a Dutch professor, Ingrid Tieken, Bridging the Unbridgeable, and she was studying what the aspects are of, of an error and what sorts of things have changed over time, what's the evolution of errors and notions of errors. And you have a whole bunch of items in your book that are really not errors, but there are things that some people hold on to or believe that they're holding the, they hold the correct answer, but the evidence is very overwhelming that these things are not mistakes at all. Right. I think what uh, Tikin is doing is uh, studying the concept of errors. That is uh, how people come to decide that something is an error in English. And we discussed that at some length in the earlier podcast. Uh, she's not so much interested in sorting out what is an error and what's not, but in what people call errors and what they don't. Um, the difference between her approach and mine is that her approach is to focus on people like me who judge other people's language and see what's going on with them. Um, with me, uh, I'm interested in helping people to avoid uh, disdain or corrections or other problems from people who think that they are using language incorrectly. And I agree with Tekin that uh, there is no such thing as correct grammar in a lot of the cases that we're talking about. They're just patterns that some people like and some don't or have been traditional and are, are no longer traditional. Um, there's a lot of fuzzy area in between and uh, I gathered a bunch of these together, and on my website, they're grouped together on a page called Non-Errors. And that became a magnet for a great many people early on in the history of the web, where people would go because somebody had told them, uh, you know, don't use split infinitives, and they got excited because they found me saying split infinitives are just fine, and then they found all this other stuff, and they started sharing it, and they kind of didn't discover that there was a whole other site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of these non-errors, some of the ones that are listed. The first one I have down here is near miss. Right. It was a near miss. And, and you certainly hear that on the news all the time. All right. I'm going to read the entry. It is futile to protest that near miss should be near collision. Some people insist that what's going on is that you're coming close to hitting something but not quite hitting it so the second word should be collision uh, this expression is a condensed version of something like a miss that came very near to being a collision and it's similar to a narrow escape everyone knows what is meant by it and almost everyone uses it 
It should be noted that the expression can also be used in the sense of almost succeeding in striking a desired target. His Cointreau souffle was a near miss. Right off the bat, that is a guiding principle of a lot of the ones we will find on this list. There's not truly any possible confusion of understanding in this, and it does actually have some meaning. It can You can miss by a wide margin, or you can miss by a narrow margin. Right, and that's exactly what's being emphasized here by saying near miss. But uh, I guess the message is don't overanalyze it. Uh, yeah, sure, in some ways you could construe it to make it sound like it has to be a contradiction, but there's no contradiction here. Uh, language is, is not constructed like an algebraic formula out of sharply defined entities. You know, it's, it's a much more mushy business. Uh, the next one I have up here is done and finished, and this will put some people in a tizzy. Right. And I think this may be fading, but certainly when I was young, it was certainly around. Some people insist dinner is done. People are finished. So when you say I'm finished, that's fine. But if dinner is finished, they don't like that. Uh, I think this is an antiquated distinction that's rarely observed in modern speech. Nobody really supposes the speaker is saying he or she has been roasted to a turn, like, I'm finished, I'm finished. Uh, Cooking, or yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. And when you're finished eating, you're finished. In older usage, people said, I have done, to indicate that they'd completed an action. I am done is not really so very different. I'm done. Doesn't mean you're done to a turn. No. Uh, I'm going down my list. Lion's share comes up next. Yeah, this is one that's, uh, it'll be unusual for you to run in. For, for one thing, and people don't have the occasion to use the expression the lion's share very often. And then your chance of running into somebody who objects to it is very slim. But in case you do, here's how to deal with it. The original meaning of this phrase reflected the idea that the lion can take whatever he wants, typically all of the slaughtered game, leaving nothing for anyone else. And some people insist, well, that's what it originally meant, the lion's share. lion eats all of it. You don't get any. Um, but in modern usage, the meaning has shifted to the largest share. So the lion's share is the great majority. This makes great sense if you consider the way hyenas and vultures swarm onto the leftovers from a typical lion's kill. Sure, and that one works perfectly fine. Uh, I'll throw you a curve here. I have one that's not on the list, but somewhat related to this. Uh, you retain it as a, an error on the site and in the book. It's borderline, though, for me. So we have decimated and annihilated or slaughtered. And what do you say about decimated versus annihilated or slaughtered? Well, this is one where I know that I am in a tiny minority. <laughs> <laughs> for most people, decimated means uh, utterly destroyed. It's just wiped out. The problem is that those of us who know a little Latin know that the decim at the beginning it comes from the number 10 and is supposed to come from a custom that the Roman army had when they were unhappy with a, a company of troops that um, had disappointed them in some way or other. Uh, they would kill every 10th one. It's one that even a lot of editors will let go. 
Well, sure. And I'm one of those editors that would let it go. And to those of us who are not bothered by it, I'll just say this. It's a, it's an interesting etymology to know that this was uh, it was taking out every tenth. Ten percent leaves 90 percent. Well, you haven't really wiped anything out. You've left 90 percent of, of what was there to begin with. On the other hand, the effectiveness of this was to subdue the entirety of the population. So in a way, uh, you could expand on this and metaphorically, I guess, create a meaning from that to say it was decimated. In other words, something was wiped out, not a literal slaughter, but maybe more metaphorical. And on top of that, we're speaking English. This is not a, a Latin class, so we can grab what we want out of that and adapt it and use it how we would like. And that's sort of how it's come around to be used. I think, in fact, probably the most common usage just reverses the old one. Instead of 10% being destroyed, it's 90%. Oh, I see. Okay. It's not so often used to mean, you know, the population of these birds was decimated in a certain area. Usually it's being suggested that there are some left, but hardly any. There are just a few. So it's sort of flipped mathematically. Well, if you did take out 90%, you would pretty well say they were pretty well annihilated anyway. (laughs) And no matter how you slice it. Uh, anyway, that was an interesting one. I think somewhat related to lion's share, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, did you take all or did you take most? Another one that uh, people get tied up in knots about, I guess a little bit to this day, uh, not really understanding the word till, how that works, T-I-L-L. Yeah. Um, since it looks like an abbreviation for until, some people argue that this word should always be spelled apostrophe t-i-l the apostrophe standing for the un not everybody insists on the apostrophe but a lot of people want it to be t-i-l not two l's but just one however till has regularly occurred as a spelling with two l's for over 800 years it's actually an older word than u-n-t-i-l until it's perfectly good english and is it true i think i have heard along the way that until is actually a bringing together of on till uh, move on till you get to such and such a place and uh, in fact until comes from till right till was first yeah uh, so let's get into some pronunciation you know your French and I'll leave this one to you this is it's what we in English say not my forte right that's not my forte uh, some people insist that it's an error to pronounce the word forte in the expression, not my forte, as if the French-delivered word F-O-R-T-E, fort, were the same as the Italian musical term for loud, forte. But the original French expression is pas mon fort, which not only has no E on the end to pronounce, it has a silent T as well. It's too bad that when we imported this phrase, we mangled it so badly, but it's too late to do anything about it now. If you go around saying what it sounds like, that's not my fort, people won't understand what you mean. And maybe less so if you say, that's not my fort. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know anybody that says that. <laughs> yeah. However, those who use the phrase to mean not to my taste, like Wagnerian opera is not my forte, are definitely mistaken. Your forte is what you're good at, 
not just stuff you like. That's right. You would have to be a very accomplished opera, perhaps an operatic performer or something, to say uh, Wagnerian opera is not my forte. Yes. Uh, I have one here, Normalcy and Normality. I didn't know the history of this until I found it in your work. The word normalcy had been around for about half a century when President Warren G. Harding was assailed in the newspapers for having used it in a 1921 speech. Some folks are still upset, but in the U.S., normalcy is a perfectly normal, if uncommon, synonym for normality. And there's not really a lot more to say about that, I guess. Except that eh, British editors are more likely to get upset with you if you use it. Uh, they'll say, what, normalcy is not a word? Uh, they'll prefer normality. Okay, so uh, because normalcy would only have the meaning of normality, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or, yeah, so they're synonyms. It's just a question of does normalcy exist as a word? Hmm. Okay, so a uh, British editor or, or world English editor might be more inclined to strike that change it to normality and i don't think the word really would have bothered a lot of people if there hadn't been this huge kerfuffle about it when harding is it in a speech about the return to normalcy he's talking about um, getting out of a recession mm-hmm. and uh, it just got all over the newspapers well these days a return to fill in the blank much more common here in the u.s anyway to say normalcy i would say at this point yes right uh, well, here's a good one, a redundancy that we don't normally think about and also thinking about etymology. So disembark the vessel. Okay, this is not one that people are going to run into very often, except for people like me who live on an island. <laughs> I live on Bainbridge Island, and uh, which we're not entirely have to go onto a vessel to get off the island because there's a bridge at one end of the island. But in order to go to Seattle, we most commonly get on a ferry and there is an announcement that's recorded that's played at the end it started being done after 9-11 when they were worried about terrorists maybe uh, staying on the on the vessel and planting a bomb or something anyway everybody has to get off when you land even if you want to do a round trip and then they can search the vessel to see if anybody's left suspicious packages behind or anything so the way they express this is to tell the passengers that they have to disembark the vessel now this wording makes some of us wince to disembark is to get off a marine vessel or put something or someone off a vessel the crew disembarks the passengers on a cargo vessel, they may disembark the cargo. It's the stuff on the ship, not the ship itself, which gets disembarked. So you don't disembark the vessel. I think it's just short for disembark from the vessel, which would be an awkward saying in itself. People sensitive to the history of words know that a bark is a boat or a ship. The word is related etymologically to barge. It would be better to simply tell the passengers to get off the vessel, leave it, go ashore. But disembark the vessel is so well established in the industry that it's not likely to go away anytime soon. Meantime, it can bother you, too. (laughs) I looked up on the web, and the only place you find it is ferries and other boats. If they have websites, they'll often use this phrase, disembark the vessel. Mm -hmm. Clearly, if you had control over the announcement, you would uh, change it. But 
for the rest of us, we're not held to that standard exactly, right? We, and you're not likely to ever say it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Luckily, most of us don't run ferries. So. The other part of the recording that's kind of entertaining is if you rode a bicycle onto the ferry, please ride it off. <laughs> because there are people who get on and they forget that they rode their bicycle and they walk off. But we've also had more than once uh, somebody drive onto the ferry and then walk off on the other end if they don't usually drive. And then because of security, they have to hold the ferry in dock and wait until they can track down the person who left the car. This is done by going, looking at the license plate, maybe the serial number through the window, then going down to track him and finding a phone number, tracking down that, getting him at work usually and say, hey, come back and get your car. And the fear is that if they just push the car off, maybe it was left there deliberately as a car bomb. So we got stuck in Seattle one time for 40 minutes waiting for some guy from the previous trip to come back and take his car off the ferry before we were allowed to get on. Imagine that. Imagine forget. Well, I can imagine forgetting your bike, I suppose. That creates much less hassle for them. They'll just move the bicycle off of the ferry if that's what they want to do. But you can't just push the car around. We have thousands of people here who commute to Seattle every day, so it's not uncommon. I mean, you get into certain habits, and if you're used to walking on, but one day you happen to think, oh, I need the car today, it would be easy to slip a gear when you get to the other end and forget. Oh, yeah. Well, many of us don't have to worry about that on a day-to-day basis, and it's such a special occasion for us to get on a ferry. We are likely to remember how we got on that ferry. Uh, The next one I see here is... Teenage and teenaged. Now, there's a difference here, but it's not really to be honored, is it, I guess? Well, it's, to me, this comes into the same category as iced tea and iced tea. Um, some people object that the word should be teenaged, with an ED on the end. But unlike the still non-standard iced tea and stained glass, teenage is almost universally accepted now. Very few people use teenaged, I think, with a D on the end. Right. If you want to think about it, I guess, grammatically or structurally, there would be a logic to putting the D on the end. It's just a matter of it's not used. Mm-hmm. It just gets dropped. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a certain kind of logic there because people don't speak of somebody being middle-aged. They're middle-aged. Yeah. Well, it's just uh, teenagers get away with something there. I think. Right. <laughs> So uh, here we have a legal term to plead innocent. People uh, don't like that one. Well, lawyers in particular, a number of the phrases and words that I deal with in the book um, are things that are a problem to people who have specialized meanings for them. And doctors or people in the medical profession generally, lawyers, literature professors, um, there's uh, mechanics. There's a whole different groups of them that have certain meanings for things that uh, not necessarily everybody else shares. So it's pretty common for people to say, well, he's going to plead innocent. But lawyers frown on the phrase plead innocent. It's plead guilty or plead not guilty. Uh, Outside of legal context, though, the phrase is standard English. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's how I understand it. Seems to me you would plead one way or the other, uh, but I guess pleading not guilty is a lawyerly way of pleading innocent. Right. Yeah. Okay, so alternate and alternative 
is coming up next. What's what do you say about that? I know that a lot of people care about this because I get <laughs> criticized for it. <laughs> my readers and i have to stop and think about it and sometimes i just stubbornly will use one or the other and i used to recently and i had to look it up and see what my book had to say about it and then i just said i don't care (laughs) although uk authorities united kingdom british authorities disapprove in u.s usage alternate is frequently an adjective substituted for the older alternative an alternate route we'd say Alternate can also be a noun. A substitute delegate is, for instance, called an alternate. But when you're speaking of every other, as in our club meets on alternate Tuesdays, you can't substitute alternative. Mm -hmm. And this really gets messed up when you switch to the adverbs alternately and alternatively. Mm, And that's very, very dicey trying to figure out what kind of rule you might construct in your head to figure out how one works in one situation and one works in other situations. And uh, people have all kinds of rules that are that they've created or (laughs) that they ideas that they have in their heads about how this all works. There And there are cases where it would make a difference, or it, it would sound funny to say we meet on alternative Tuesdays, but there, there are lots of cases where alternate and alternative are just interchangeable. Uh, how about, let's see, we're looking at for goodness sakes and for goodness sake. For goodness sakes. Picky folks point out that since the mild expletive, for goodness sake is a euphemism for for God's sake, The second word should not be pluralized to sakes. But heavens to Betsy, if little things like that are going to bother you, you'll have your dander up all the time. (laughs) And Donald Rumsfeld liked to say, heavens to Betsy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lot. And, you know, unlike some religions, which have multi various heavens you can go to, Christianity traditionally just has one. Mm -hmm. It's a good point. Let's not get all tied up in knots about for goodness sakes versus for goodness sake. or you yeah. know, Just say what you want to say. Nobody's going to deride you for it or mark down your paper for it. But you're not even likely to use it because it just sounds so corny and old-fashioned. And uh, I, I like how you worked in Heavens to Betsy and Get Your Dander Up on <laughs> that entry, too. Well, I think it's used mainly to illustrate that the speaker is an old-fashioned person who really doesn't want to swear and uses a lot of euphemisms. Yes, right. Uh, Okay, here is one that um, I know people get very tied up in knots about is farther and further. Some authorities, like the Associated Press, insist on farther to refer to physical distance and on further to refer to an extent of time or degree. But others treat the two words as interchangeable, except for insisting on further for the meaning in addition or moreover. You'll always be safe in making the distinction. Some people get really testy about this. So if you're writing for publication or for a picky English teacher, you know, consult the book and follow the advice. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Sure. And there are some expressions like, let's go a little further up the road, uh, where it would sound a little funny to say farther, even though that would be that would be correct usage. Mm-hmm. And nobody would ever say farthermore. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one that I've been thinking about lately because I've been seeking advice of some people. And 
I'm always thinking, is that my advisor with an ER or is that advisor with an OR? What is it? They're equally fine spellings. There's no distinction between them. Okay, good. No matter what my uh, autocorrect says or if one or the other flashes up as a spelling error. Somehow I prefer the OR. That's what I always used to write. I was an advisor, an academic advisor, so I had occasion to use it a lot. But I have a, um, a colleague who is uh, an English professor and teaches at uh, the Vancouver campus of Washington State University. And she puts um, as the signature, below her signature line on all of her emails, reader and advisor. <laughs> which I think is hilarious because it's literally true, but that's what these psychics that hire themselves out put on their signs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Here's one that slips into some technology, and is it a redundancy or not to say LCD display? Right, right. (laughs) LCD stands for liquid crystal display. So some argue it is redundant to write LCD display and argue you should just use LCD or LCD screen instead. But some in the industry argue that LCD display is the generic term for the category which comprises both LCD screens and LCD projectors. However, if you want to avoid the redundancy in wording, you can still refer more precisely to your laptop or TV as having an LCD screen. But this is one of those that often uh, we have to follow an abbreviation with something that makes it clearer. And a lot of people don't know that the D stands for display. Mm -hmm. I guess the people in the industry are going both ways on it anyway. So let's follow their lead. Mm -hmm. However, many people confuse this abbreviation with LED, which stands for light emitting diode, a much earlier technology. You will often see explanations, even in technical contexts, in which LCD is incorrectly defined as liquid crystal diode. So, you know, you're not going to have a lot of use for this unless you start writing about technology. But it's amazing how often the two get mixed up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would be a mistake. Uh, Final one I have for this week is uh, live. Or is it long-lived or long-lived? What's the correct pronunciation or does it matter? And expressions like long-lived, producing the last part to rhyme with dived, is more traditional. But rhyming it with sieved is so common that it's now widely acceptable. So I think I usually say long-lived. Yeah, and I don't know where I got the fell into the habit of saying long-lived, except that long-lived is so commonly used, and I know that long-lived is... Equally acceptable and possibly maybe more correct in a way. It's just to be contrary, I suppose. I like to say long-lived. <laughs> well, long-lived may be influenced also by the more common expression long-live, as in long-live the queen. Oh, right. Yeah. But in either case, let's not worry about it, shall we? Right. Well, thank you, Paul. I want to talk some more about some other non-errors that you have, but um, I think that's enough for now. Okay, good to talk to you, Tom. So long. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. 
Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.